The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom. Now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 59 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, the podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. I'm not shy when it comes to she, but I draw the line at playing Touch the Tucci. I'm Adam. <laughs> Damage control. Damage control. Damage control. I think that's as blue as we've gotten on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and boy, have we got a jam-packed show for you tonight, geeks, because we are literally bursting at the seams with guests. And not only that, they're all former staff members of Wizard Magazine. It's like a wizard clown car around here. So uh, first up out the door, it's the man who went down with the ship as the final editor of Toy Fair Magazine. But lucky for us, he pushed all the women and children out of the way to get priority seating on a lifeboat just so he could make it here today. Ahoy, Captain Justin Ackland. Ahoy. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> and next is the man who must have been a big Kenner DC Comics action figure fan of the 90s, you know, because his name says it all. Welcome to the show, TJ, which obviously stands for Total Justice. Deesh, how you doing? What's up? And the final member of our panel tonight is the Loose Cannon, who dared to mock the correspondence of incarcerated comic book fans in the Magic Words column and somehow lived to tell the tale. It's Chris Deadman Walking Ward. Hey, Adam. Great to be here. Yep. Although based on our pre-show uh, discussion here, maybe we should just call you the pinball wizard if we found some secret hobbies. Yeah, I'm trying really hard. I'm 10th ranked in Missouri right now. So Whoa. <laughs> I'm told I could go to state, which I didn't even know was a thing. So here we go. Can you get a Letterman's jacket? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I can get some like Archie jackets <laughs> <laughs> we believe all right now each of you has actually already been a guest on the wizard files or part of our 30th anniversary roundtable event to talk about your time working for the big cheese but now you've been called up to the big show guys you're going to talk about your time as fans before your geeky ramblings got printed in the magazine so we're very excited about this but before we get into our first segment proper i did want us to have just a little bit of fun here with the bullpen section of wizard magazine magazine, which should be of particular interest to you fellows, because in this issue, your old boss, Pat McCallum, gives us a day in the life look at what his responsibilities were in the office. And having worked with the man, what I'm doing is inviting each of you to read a line in your best Pat voice. Okay, do your best impression of Pat McCallum, and we'll just trade off each uh, moment of his day here. Says, and now for something completely different. Wizard Editor-in-Chief Pat McCallum here. I write bullpen every month. This time around, there's nothing to talk about. No chili cook-offs, no softball games, nothing. So in an effort to fill space, allow me to take you on a tour through my average workday here at Wizard HQ. 7.15 a.m., wake up to some loud Alanis Morissette song, feed my cats, feed myself, wash my soiled body parts, and head off to Wizard. 
Justin, take it. Before I, I jump into yeah. this, I want to preface it <laughs> and say, I'm sure all of us have nothing but respect for Pat. Pat was, and, and we mentioned this on the 30th anniversary podcast, the, the heart and soul of Wizard, the creative brain behind all everything we love about it. And also a little hard to uh, impersonate. I'm sure you've heard people do uh, Garib impersonations many mm, times yes. on the podcast, <laughs> usually asking like, who are you and do you work for me? <laughs> I can't, I don't know if Pat lends himself to uh, impersonation. So I'm going to do a voice that Pat used to do. Um, and that's going to be my impersonation of him. So okay. he used to do this kind of like, I'll call it an a-hole voice. So, <laughs> like, Enter office. I share with Brian Cunningham. Exchange pleasantries, even though I know he wants my job and plots my death. <laughs> uh, it's been a while. Let's just say that. Uh Daily 30-minute meeting of the Wizard Art and Editorial Departments. Senior mag- Managing Editor Joe Yanarella reminds me I'm late with this month's bullpen. So uh, Pat usually would sound like this. A 30-minute meeting breaks up. Go back <laughs> to my office to work on a bullpen. <laughs> wow. 1047. Promotions Manager of Magic Words Pop Icon Jim McLaughlin enters my office. Ask me who I think would win in a fight. One-legged ex-pro wrestler Mad Dog Vashon hopped up on NyQuil or mythical wizard contributing editor Mark Wilkowski armed with the serrated blade off a tinfoil dispenser. I vote Mad Dog. Jim agrees. Comments on how Mark couldn't kick anybody's ass and leaves. I start writing captions for the toy and card price guides. Could we say ass in the magazine? <laughs> they said a lot of it, <laughs> especially in these years. Oh, we man. said a lot of ass. So I didn't. Would Walmart pull us if, <laughs> if that was the case? Probably. Boy, I don't want to keep doing that voice. So I'm just going to talk. <laughs> and this one is about my old boss, Andrew Carden. After spending an hour editing out Dukes of Hazard and Twisted Sister references from editorial material, explained to copy editor Andrew Carden that he's got to stop trying to slip them in the book. That is very Andrew, yes. He retorts that Sheriff Roscoe's dog is named Flash and that it's a perfect comic tie-in weak with hunger i see his logic and agree (laughs) (laughs) all right lunch it's off to taco bell where managing editor scott grambling eats what we assume is seven pounds of taco flesh we all agree that scott will be dead by age 30 (laughs) <laughs> instead he comes back to run the final days yeah of i was still there about that? i like that everyone was young enough to make dead by 30 jokes like <laughs> so far away uh, i'll do this a little more like rorschach so like 101 back at wizard marveling at hell administrative assistant jim cavella sneeze is like the sound of a small disney rodent would make if you squeezed it start writing the polybag text for wizard Two o'clock, weekly wizard staff meeting, editorial design, advertising, promotions, research, marketing, and online services get together to share info. The air conditioning is on the fritz. We all have gas from Taco Bell and Scott's been missing since lunch. We call the meeting short and stagger back to our desks. I start assembling the top 10 list for bullpen. Or 23, research assistant Phil Colligan stops in and wants to know how the rumor started that he was... Sexually assaulted by a manatee. I oh wow, boy, I tripped over that. <laughs> oh, I come and I did it. And if he doesn't like it, there's a million high school kids that would love his job. Phil leaves, and I go back to working on more picks. By the way, Adam, have you guys covered how Phil Colligan was one of the the panel of like local youths in the early issues of the magazine, and then ended oh, up working there I didn't for many make years? That connection that what? is wild. I was going back and looking at the early issues recently, and they had like those, you know, like they literally like rounded up a bunch of local teens, and I'm like Phil. Colligan again i know that guy whoa that's wild yeah because we did cover the fact that he was part of the underworld unleashed he was drawn into an issue of that at dc comics but no that's cool <laughs> it's been all over the place wow <laughs> 
Five o'clock, head to the warehouse and lose repeatedly to designer Arlene So at Ping Pong. She eventually calls me half a sissy and leaves undefeated. I go on to lose to everyone until I face Phil. I remind him of that million high school kids thing and I win 11 zip. <laughs> Six o'clock, head on home, feed my cats, make some pasta, and turn on pro wrestling. The Undertaker's cool. 12.30 a.m. I'm glad I got none of the problematic ones. So, thank yeah, I'm going to get canceled, aren't I? <laughs> Says, fall asleep reading the Count of Monte Cristo. Wonder what happened to Scott right before I nod off. That would have been a great opportunity for a Count of Monte Cristo joke. <laughs> or Monte Cristo sandwich joke. Oh, and finally, they're adjusted. 7.15 a.m. Repeat. Delicious. This is a real psychological peek into into pat's <laughs> process here the one and only pat mccallum who someday someday you know like at the end of a christmas vacation we'll just tie him up and we'll someone will <laughs> deliver him for christmas to us so we can interview him <laughs> on the podcast well it's time to see what the diehard comics fans of the mid-90s were so curious about that they felt the need to bug Chris's predecessor, Jim McLaughlin, about it in the pages of Magic Words. So it sounds like we're ready to open up Willie Lumpkin's Mailbag. <laughs> I want to mention first thing that it should be noted comic book professionals Joe Casada and Joe Duffy both wrote into the magazine this month. What? Joe Cuber, Joe Gisco are too busy to chime in. Come on, Joe's. But who wants to hear from successful people who actually know what they're talking about? Ah, we came here for fanboy nonsense and plenty of it. So we're each going to take turns uh, reading a couple of these letters out here. So, Chris, take it away. Okay, here we go. Magic words. Recently, I was fortunate enough to acquire a mint copy of Action Comics number one and Detective Comics number 27. My comic collection is almost complete. I am currently waiting for issue number eight of Sonic Disruptors to hit the stands. Could you possibly tell me when it will be released? Christopher A. Moser, Lake Ronkonkoma, New York. Ronkonkoma. Ronkonkoma. Wow. Yep. Ronkonkoma sounds like a cool transformer. Oh, I was going to say that's a, that's like the sequel to Kokomo by the Beach Boys. <laughs> Ron Concoma. But but this guy is full of crap. Oh, my God. Here's what Jim had to say. He said that would be approximately the 12th of never for the uninitiated out there. Sonic Disruptors was a late 80s DC miniseries to which the United States Army fought a rock band in outer space. It's about as good a story as you can imagine. It was scheduled to be a 12-issue series, but it was so terrible. The DC pulled the plug a bit early. Looks like your collection is destined to be incomplete. And I got to say, I think he's probably lying about the action comics. Adam, I suspect, I suspect that this is what we in the uh, magazine business call a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Does seem that way, doesn't it? As those those street corner comedians from Lake Ronkakoma are apt to do. <laughs> but how how did Jim resist, you know, like just tear it into the guy for such a bit? You know, that's what I'm wondering about. Because I was asking for it. And <laughs> you, you never give them what they really want, right? Chris? Honestly, I expected, right. hey pal, you're luckier than OJ Simpson. There were so many <laughs> OJ jokes. <laughs> These Justin, that, that's a good point. Like people will, will write in or would write into wizard kind of baiting you in, into bits and things. And it really is like the sincere letters and sort of the clueless ones that were a lot of fun. All right, TJ, who's up next here? <laughs> Mark Wilson. Okay. So this is funny. Dear wizard, please make fun of me. Mark Wilson, London, Ontario, Canada. And Jim wrote, no. 
<laughs> there we go. It's just what we're Which talking is, about. It's what we're talking about. I learned. I learned from the master. <laughs> All right, Justin. What's next? Okay, this is from Lacey R. Odell from New Orleans, Louisiana, great town. Dear Wizard Staff, number one, what is a swirly? Number two, I'm 25. You can tell me what SMF stands for. Come on, please. I can take it. So Jim responds, a swirly is, depending on your point of view, one of the most fun or most cruel junior high school pranks. The swirly process involves holding someone upside down above a toilet, dunking their head, and while the head is still in the bowl, flushing. As you imagine, or possibly remember, the end result is a wet swirl hairdo, hence the name. If you're a comic fan, chances are it's happened to you at some point. Boy, the world has changed for comics fans. Right. (laughs) I was just thinking. This was right on the, so what year did this uh, magazine, did this, this is 96. Yeah. So 96. So yeah, still not cool to be into Marvel oh, at no. this point at all. And I was buying comics and like kind of folding them up and keeping them in my backpack because not good. <laughs> to be caught. You, you, you would get a swirly. And the, uh, the second response here is I'm 27. Wow. Oh. SMF stands for Scott's mutant friends or occasionally small militant ferret. Take that. Does anyone know what I SMF? Don't, I don't know what she's even referring to. Unless it's no mentioned no. like somewhere in X- the X-Men comics letter column. Is that Scott Labdell? Is that maybe a reference to that? Like, again, I think Jim's answers are a bit. I don't, but I'm not sure where she pulled SMF from. Out yeah, of the, it's not a running either. gag in, in magic words because we read every letter, every issue, and I haven't seen that come up. Yes, that's an interesting one. But the last one here is from Curtis Sampson of Halstead, Pennsylvania. He says, You guys at Wizard Rule, I bet you guys get all the chicks. And this is what I thought of you guys, but says oh, here, yeah. What chicks? This is the comic biz to steal a line from someone else. This industry is 95% male and 30% body fat. We're comic geeks. The only chicks we get are the blow up kind. So I think he undershot. I think he undershot on the body fat. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe he had it backwards in his mind or something. Yeah. (laughs) Ironically, I think all three of us, when we worked at wizard, were in our early twenties and were married. Mm-hmm. So I was, enga- oh, wow. I was engaged. Mm-hmm. I bought a fake wedding ring so I could move into this apartment with Alex Segura because <laughs> the landlords would let me move in, but not if I wasn't already married or it was some crazy old timey rule they had. So I bought a fake wedding ring for the five months before we got married. And I bet the older editor said, that sounds like three's company. And you said, what's that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yep. Oh, all right. Well, here we go. We got plenty of information there through the letters page. Chris, did you have any flashbacks to any experiences and answering magic words as we were going through those letters? Actually, the bunny award uh, kind of triggered me a little bit. Seeing that bunny costume in that at that desk at that computer. Before it was being dressed was, up in I a different for- costume every month. In your right. Day. I forgot about that that photo. That's awesome. And and Andrew Carden in a Captain America outfit. I wish I hadn't seen that. <laughs> well, you know, if Andrew Carden had gotten the super soldier serum and somehow teamed up with D. Snyder to take on the world as a super team, I'm sure we would have heard about it in the news. So it is time that we check out the... All right, so our top story tonight, Send Out the Clone, reveals that with issue number 75 of Spider-Man, the endless clone saga, now basically three years long, will finally come to an end. With the understatement of the year, Spider-Man editor Ralph Macchio tells Wizard, quote, we know we went astray a little. People who loved Spider-Man before the clone came up are going to leave and love him again. From this point onward, there will only be one Spider-Man. If people are waiting for number 75 to jump back on, it's really their loss because they're going to be missing out on some very good Spider-Man stories. So here's the question, guys. What did you 
think of the spider clone storyline in the 90s but how do you feel about it also now in hindsight i think i mentioned this when i was on i wasn't reading marvel at all at this point third that is mike what This is my third issue of Wizard, and I remember being like, what's up with Spider-Man? They did what to him? So I'm kind of learning about it as it was happening. The crazy thing in this article that surprised me is that, is it Macho? He's like, oh yeah, we, maybe we screwed up a little bit. Like, you would never hear that now about anything. Every company does these terrible stories, and they're like, yeah, no, we're doubling down. It is the best thing that's ever happened. <laughs> they would do the same thing that this is, which is, oh, uh, never mind. It's not that. It's this. Don't worry about it. Throw him down a, one of those big smokestacks and it'll be fine. But uh, yeah, actually like a Mia Culpa kind of, kind of was pretty surprising in this article. I remember that I wasn't too interested in the, the clone saga because, you know, I read Wizard for like getting my cues for what to read and they were pretty snarky about it. And it seemed pretty silly uh, with, wasn't there a blonde Ben Riley? was it? Ben Riley. Really digging deep on that one. So I sort of avoided, so, you know, and the mea culpa, like TJ said about, eh, you know, we heard the fans, we heard you guys. It's kind of an interesting early example of like what goes on on Twitter now, you know, just but with a much smaller group of people gatekeeping <laughs> at a magazine. But I, I never really was a, a big spider clone fan. And I had bounced off Hot of the take. spider books by the time that the clone saga happened. I think I might have been around for the very beginning and then maybe use that as my excuse to, to to bounce off. And I think that that speaks to the fact that comic fans, as a rule, don't like it when you tell them that the stories that they've been reading for the past 25 years don't really count or, you know, weren't really what they thought they were. And I'm going to break format here a little bit and skip <laughs> and talk about something I read in the Onslaught article that we'll talk about soon. But they go out of their way in the article to say like, oh, we're not going to do a crisis. We're not going to say that, you know, the continuity you read doesn't exist. So they knew at the time like that that's you know, some that's poison for, for comic continuity fans, which is ironic because now like Marvel has done that at least a couple times now. DC does it every like six months. They're like, everything you read doesn't matter. And I think that's why I've had a hard time <laughs> with uh, superhero comics the, the last few years. It, you know, it, it's just, it's hard to feel like anything has consequences anymore. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out in what the Marvel TV and movies are doing, because now that it is expanding and expanding and expanding, we're starting to hear things like oh well the eternals and moon knight don't really connect and like there's some like things that might not have been so popular there's kind of pushed aside the inhumans you know mm-hmm. of which we do not speak <laughs> they um, are 100 heading for a hard reboot on the, yes. the mcu oh, yeah. yeah yeah that's how it feels so it, it's interesting to see this dynamic play out in a different media landscape but boy i sound like a pr person (laughs) speaking of that digital landscape this next story this is what i'm curious to see because this is looking forward a little bit to a a bit of our modern situation because digital comics are like all the rage at this time as virtual comics announces the release of new comic books from stan lee ron Lim, dave gibbons and others that are accessible online to be quote displayed right on your computer screen in the standard 256 colors or optionally thousands of colors for those of you with graphics cards <laughs> wow which i was i was not in 1996 no, <laughs> no graphics card oh you were not part of the elite. I, I, I had to play star wars dark forces with a boot disc on my packard <laughs> bell 
Now, here's the thing. Danny Fingeroth is heading up this online adventure and says, quote, I was with Marvel for 18 years. When the opportunity came up to be editor-in-chief at Virtual Comics, I decided to take the leap into cyberspace. <laughs> Everybody wanted to leap into cyberspace back then. Uh, in the future, people will be getting their comics directly through their home computers. We're going to give you half credit there, Danny. You didn't know we'd all be addicted to phones and tablets and downloading from various apps and shaking our fists at Comixology. You changed it! Don't change it, Comixology! Is that, has that fervor subsided? Are people no longer uh, on that train of saying it's the worst thing ever? I think people are still mad about it. I, I heard it <laughs> pop up like last week. Okay, so I have not corrected it yet. But also, Virtual Comics is not the pathfinder of this digital frontier because DC Comics claims to have introduced, quote, the first electronic serialization in comics history that's very specific, maybe came from the legal department. What they did is they released several pages of Batman Legends of the Dark Knight issues 83 and 84 on DCComics.com for two days at a time over several months, starting in April 1996, after which the physical book were then available to buy in stores. So they're saying, yeah, we released it online first. Nobody's ever done that before. So were you guys accessing the world of comics on your computers in 1996 in any way? No, no, no. no. Yeah. Like, like Chris was saying, it would have downloaded like a picture. Like if you wanted to look at a movie poster, it would just be like, like a, a centimeter at a time on your screen. And you'd just be sitting there like, I don't care anymore. The movie's out now. <laughs> if you wanted to be involved with like comic books online at that time, you had to create a web page on angelfire.com mm -hmm. and make it yourself. There just wasn't anything like that. I mean, that's the niche that wizard filled. Even a few years ago, like, I would find a record, let's say, that uh, I found this record uh, by this gospel singer with no arms and no legs who had this incredible career. And I was just blown away by this thing. No information online. And now that's everywhere. So it's like less and less things that you can't find. <laughs> but back then it was zero. I loved the way that they presented the, the DC thing. First of all, there were never more than two pages available at once. So you had to really like be diligent about coming back day after day to, to read the <laughs> stories. But basically what they were saying was, you know, they, they put the pages online and then you could read the, the comic later. And I'm like, that's literally every single comic book right now. Obviously, you know, you, yeah. you have the, the preview pages and then you go buy it. And it, it was pretty cutting edge in 1996, but... Mm -hmm. As everyone said, you know, nobody had time for that. But the thing is, like, you know, it, this was, in fact, the end of an era in a big way, because also the news over at Marvel was that John Romita and his wife, Virginia, officially retired from Marvel Comics on March 30th, 1996. After more than two decades with the publisher, they were given a going away party that was attended by Spider-Man himself. We see a little <laughs> photo of the costume. Uh, we don't know if that's our buddy Jerry, who was the costume Spider-Man who we had on here. Uh, but uh, we, the Chris Claremont was in attendance. Al Milgram, Mike Carlin, and Mark Grunewald, among others. You got to think that John Romita was just like, I'm getting out of here right now because there <laughs> are some bad things on the horizon for Marvel for the next few years. So the old guard was out. But I think, guys, that it's time that we get into the world of Wizard. We're going to check out our table of contents. 
So Wizard 59 with a July 1996 cover date featured two covers. So the first was a Billy Tucci She cover, which just goes to show really in this era how big that character was for probably a two to three year stretch. Thanks in large part to Wizard coverage. Uh, you know, Billy Tucci, we like you. We're going to put She everywhere. Not that it wasn't a great comic, but I think that had to uh, had to have helped quite a bit. Now, I'm curious if you guys had this cover or the other cover, which was a Joe Quesada Superman cover where he's kind of like, I don't know if it's like steam or water. Okay, so TJ has Superman. Justin has she. I had Superman for sure. Okay. And I just want to make it clear. I did not choose she. I was a subscriber at the time and it came in the mail. <laughs> I've chosen Superman for sure. Okay. But now the issue came packed with a wizard onslaught Chrome card, a Nintendo Killer Instinct collectible card game card, and a Crow City of Angels trading card, which just goes to show they can't all be winners. There was also an offer for a Don Half issue, and it included a Ron Garney Silver Surfer poster promoting his new run on the series after being booted off of Captain America for Rob Liefeld and Heroes Reborn. Which was written by George Perez. Yeah, that, it's so interesting that George <laughs> was writing Silver Surfer. Yeah, um, I looked that up because I was like, oh, was this like two issues or something? Uh, it was 11. <laughs> well, and have you guys seen what uh, this Ron Garney version of uh, Silver Surfer looks like? Because they have a little blurb in this issue talking about it. And he basically looks like Iceman. He looks like, yeah, or like the T-1000 got dinged up, you know, like by some hammers. <laughs> yes. Very angular, which is an interesting choice. And it kind of does look like the, God help me, I don't remember the, the name of him. The guy made out of diamonds from the Guardians of the Galaxy. Not the movie oh, guys. Martin the actual X? comic book. Yes, Martin X. Was he from Pluto? I think he was from Pluto. Sure. <laughs> Aren't we all? <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, uh, the back of that poster, though, we get a Brian Douglas Ahern calendar, which we all looked forward to, didn't we? This was kind of his big coming out party these last few months, and he starts doing more and more pieces in the magazine as well, which is fun. Let's get into our cover story here, guys, because we have a first look covering the Shi Saseji one-shot manga being released in Japan and the the USA with art by Nelson Asensio. Is that a name that rings in your mind? Has he gone on to do a lot of bigger things? I'm assuming. Now, TJ, you might remember this. I'm pretty sure Nelson went on to be a toy industry guy. I think he was a sculptor or at least a character designer for toys. It, it sounded familiar, but not from comics. So maybe that's why this isn't like Nelson Nelson, right? Is no. That yeah. Guy? So okay. That was different. Nelson. Yeah. DeCastro or something. I think is his name. Yeah. I'm going to Google it. There's a, okay. there's a Cuban actor with that name. And so that's not going to be helpful. <laughs> yeah. I wish we had Zach out here because he's a toy designer for diamond select toys. Where, oh, where wow. Zach works. Away. Yeah. I knew <laughs> cool. it. Nice. You Funny. still got it, Justin. Wow. Uh, I miss Billy Tucci a lot. I haven't seen that guy so long. I forgot that, how fun he was. So you had interactions with Billy? Yeah. You know, at Comic-Cons and stuff, he was just always a really fun dude. Yeah. When we had him on, he was a lot of fun. He says he wants to come back and there's plenty to talk about. So I think we might have to extend that invitation again here. But it's interesting because at this time, he's saying, you know, the anticipation so high. It's not just going to be a one shot. They're doing a follow-up <laughs> miniseries in the fall. He's, I mean, I always love that, right? You demanded it. So we're going to mm -hmm. deliver, you know, just building the hype. But he reveals that some Japanese manga publishers wanted to put out she comics in japan but quote they didn't want my drawings they wanted to take my stories and hire their own artists to draw she in a manga style so to retain control of his character tucci decided to produce his own manga style comic quote this is basically our way of saying to the japanese hey 
here we go. We can do it like this too. You just imagine the enthusiasm of Billy Tucci, right? So of course, Wizard also eventually offers a she manga half issue to readers, right? Uh, which we have. We have a gold version. We have the standard version in the archives here. So, <laughs> but she guys, you know, were you ever in on the she craze? You weren't reading Marvel, TJ. Were you picking up Crusade comics and she? Oh, not not at this point. I was. This was ninety six. So I'm thirteen. Still mainly DC. I would go on to read the first she trade. I bought like a a lot on eBay when I was in college. And so I got to check out a bunch of this stuff that I'd always heard about. And I don't remember it, but I, you know, I like his art. I've seen it before uh, in different stuff. I think he's great. And you're right. It's just this, this like, yeah, man. I'm going to do another one, even though this one hasn't sold yet. And I don't know what it's going to do. And the market is pretty close to tanking, I think, at this point. So <laughs> good luck, Billy. Get it while you can. Yeah, yeah I get it. Should have gotten that that Japanese manga money, man. <laughs> Anybody else? So she would have been impossible to get for me. It would have been one of these books where I grew up was so small. The comic book shop was pretty far away. And we could really only get comics at like Walmart or the local drugstore. And so it was a pretty good chance it was just going to be DC and Marvel. So like if I heard about She or Milk and Cheese or Bone, it would be in Wizard and I would have to somehow figure out a way to order it through the mail. But She and those kind of books never tickled me in that special way ever. (laughs) I don't understand (laughs) She or Witchblade or Vampirella or any of those outside of maybe Frank Cho. And it just never uh, caught my interest. Yeah, I was completely outside of the bad girl craze. I don't think I bought any of those. At at this point, I was 15 and I was dating my current wife who was not my wife at the time <laughs> but it you know it sound I, like I, you're on your third wife craziest way to put it <laughs> strike that no yeah so i don't think like you know I, I was bringing home like all sorts of scantily clad women from the comic store and having to explain that well that is the thing like nobody admits it i don't know how many people had them tucked under the bed but everybody that is still into comics now apparently was not into the bad girl craze. and, and to give you like reference i had a poster of alicia silverstone from the movie the babysitter on my wall Ooh. that was my crush apparently and she but was in the crush. the crush. The crush, yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> the closest I got was reading that Jim Ballant Catwoman series. Uh, but that was more so because it was part of the DC stuff. And I was just, I'm like, there's too many crossovers. I don't know what's happening. Uh, plus Jim Ballant, you know, he draws real good. <laughs> All right. Well, now our second cover story, guys, Men of Steel, is a conversation with Bruce Tim and Paul Dini about the new Superman animated series, which is getting a 90 minute animated movie premiering in primetime in August 1996. And then a 13 episode first season in September of that year, says Bruce Tim about the difference in producing this series as opposed to the previous outing with Batman. Quote, you don't have to think very hard to make Batman an interesting character. You have to put more thought in to make Superman interesting. It's a challenge. Responding to this challenge, Tim says their Superman quote doesn't stand around and say, no problem, citizen. It's all part of the job. He saves somebody and he's off again. He's quiet and mysterious. Of making their version of Clark Kent more unique, Paul Dini adds, nobody plays Clark as a hard ass. Second one may have the issue, guys. (laughs) But they did it in the TV show from the 50s he's referencing, and that worked out great. So we're playing that up. As far as the look of Superman, it's reported that the producers eliminated the long haired look from the comics after what Tim 
calls, quote, long drawn out negotiations with DC Comics. And uh, regarding the threats Kal-El will be facing off against, Tim says, quote, I went out, got that Superman encyclopedia, and the list of villains was staggeringly dull. There's the Parasite, Brainiac, and Bizarro. That's it. All the other classic Superman villains are old fat guys in business suits. But fun guest stars like Lobo and eventually Supergirl are promised. There is one more quote, though, for Bruce Tim with a question I want to propose to you guys. He says, quote, we're in the 90s now. What are kids going to think of this show? So what did you think of Superman, the animated series? Were you a regular viewer? It was no Batman, the animated series, mm, but hard to compete. Um, it was fine. I'll call it fine. I was like most of the kids in this era swept up in like, um, like anime oh. and you know, Dragon Ball Z would be on Cartoon Network. The, Toonami, the nerds right? in our school. Yeah. Toonami. Yeah. Um, I might be off by a few years, but I feel like, you know, the art, like Joe Mad's art and things like that, you know, even the she thing in the manga, like that style was st- starting to be exciting to me. And even now these, those cartoons were starting to feel weird also i was like in high school a freshman or sophomore so i guess i was wanting to watch ninja scroll and not (laughs) superman (laughs) i was still watching saturday morning cartoons at this point i definitely watched superman i will echo what chris said it certainly it can't hold a candle to batman but they did a good job they didn't try and make it you know like batman but just you know plug superman into it they definitely gave it its own thing and i could admire that i also love in this article they point out that all of the voice actors look like they could play the characters in live mm-hmm. action which a is fantastic and b makes me really want to see clancy brown as lex luther <laughs> good yeah I was going to say between Tim Daly and Dana Delaney, it's like, I really like, I thought they were spot on on all their voices. Yeah. Well, it uh, just, it just so happens. My wife has been binging wings on Hulu. So I've seen a ton of Tim Daly. (laughs) I'm like, you know what? Yeah, I can see it. But I mean, if you look at what these guys did, the Superman animated series, this style, even more than Batman kind of like carried through with justice league. So this lingered around for, you know, a decade or, or more like, yeah. It might not have been the the most exciting animated series of all time, but it really established something that lasted. Mm-hmm. I was a big Superman fan, but for some reason, I did not watch this show that much. Might have been like a timing thing. And this is, of course, back when, like, if you wanted to watch something you weren't actually watching, you had to record it, you know, on a VHS. But the funniest thing to me, again, about this interview is, like, clearly nobody cares about, like, PR response. Because <laughs> he's like, yeah, Superman's kind of lame. We're doing this cartoon. Whatever. Um <laughs> I, as a yeah. big Superman fan, it drives me crazy that he's like, yeah, I bought this book from the fifties and all the villains are dumb. Like, yeah, man, they're, they're 40 years old at that point. But yes, it's, this is, I've actually gone back and watched this one and it holds up really well, just like the Batman one does. And like Justin said, it leads so well into uh, justice league <clears throat> and justice league unlimited, which was still on when we were, at least when I got to wizard. Uh, the last season was on. We loved watching that show. Yeah, I mean, I I just was watching some episodes like the two-part Lobo episode. That's yeah. super fun. Like, the fact yeah. that they put Lobo into the series, they're like, that's a priority number one. First season, <laughs> Lobo's getting in there. Yeah. Uh, so that, that was pretty cool. But I'm curious for you guys here about this next particular comic because Caught in the Nexus is a short piece about Mike Barrett and Steve Rude rededicating themselves to producing Nexus comics, which they had started publishing in 19 
1981 and yet produced less than 100 issues after 15 years of creating the character. Quote, it's really hurt our profile in the comic community to come out so sporadically, says Baron. But now the pair promises to produce at least six issues per year of an ongoing series. Very telling, though, is the final quote from the duo. As Rude says, quote, as Nexus evolves, I find it reflects things I'm wrestling with in my own life. The older I get, the more cynical I get. And then Baron chimes in, while I'm becoming more optimistic. (laughs) The original odd couple. If you have ever seen the documentary, though, Rude Dude about Steve Rude, it's on Amazon Prime. You can watch it there. You see, he was likely the reasons for the lag in production. He's like this tortured soul perfectionist. It it was really interesting, though, when I watched that documentary, I was like, he just lived like a couple miles away from me. Like he was living in Arizona and I was living there at the same time. And I was like, whoa, I probably passed him at the supermarket, you know? Uh, But I'm curious, uh, TJ, I know you had something that came to mind as you reread this article. got this one from the library. Dark Horse did these archives, much like the DC ones, and I and I was flipping through it. I read a little bit of it. It was fine, I, but I always thought this art was so cool. He did a book called The Moth, Killer Moth, something like that, a little bit after this that I remember. But yeah, it starts off, the, the problem with all these books, and, and maybe another reason it was so late, is because all of these little companies that these guys did these independent books through in the 80s just like folded and then nobody knew who owned what. So it was all just all over the place. True. Yeah. They were definitely jumping around to different publishers. But did you, have you guys ever spent any time reading Nexus? I read like the first 20 or so issues a couple of years back and I was like, you know, like you say, it's solid. It's kind of dark. It's not like a, you know, yeah, adventure. It's kind of like, <laughs> you know, this brooding hero who is a killer and everybody just thinks of him as a killer, even though, you know, he's like, well, I kind to have to do this or I'll die. Any takes on Nexus? It sounds like something I would really like now that I clearly just ignored then for whatever reason. I probably thought it was Cyclops. <laughs> it's a cool costume. It's yeah. very cool. Yeah, it looks great. It does make you want to see a multiverse team up with Solar Man of the Atom, <laughs> Nexus, and then get just Cyclops in there for good measure. I never read Nexus. I might have read, I feel like he did a Madman crossover. Yeah. I might have yep. gotten that. That was my first introduction, picking up that issue. Yeah. Yeah. But I will say, I mean, you can see why Steve Rude took so long to do his art because it's fantastic. It's beautiful. And it looks like that very kind of like clean Alex Toth inspired look that is mm-hmm. very popular now. So it might have been a little bit ahead of its time as well. It's even got a little Alex Ross to it, you know, kind of in at least this main image. Yeah, it's good stuff. He did a lot of painted stuff, and then the interiors were great. But this next one here, speaking of, you know, very celebrated art, uh, this is another first look. They call it a first look bonus, and that's profiling The Darkness by Mark Silvestri and Garth Ennis. Now, Silvestri mentions that he had been developing the concept over several years with many different writers until, quote, I could get it done right. And it seems like the slow and steady approach paid off as this comic becomes a huge hit for Top Cow. It just keeps running it goes on and on uh now at this point they're telling you the character is going to have a four-page preview in cyber force number 25 then a cameo in witchblade number 10 before the ongoing series launches so were you guys at all on board for the darkness or have you caught up with it after the fact like some people might consider this Silvestri's best work of the 90s because i don't know how popular cyber force truly was this book's awesome to read i got it from the library actually if you're listening at home do not take a shot every time tj says he got a book out of the library because <laughs> I mean, we do whatever. Don't, I'm not going to tell you what's going to do with your yeah. life. <laughs> 
Um, I mean, it's it's like right in that pocket of mid '90s Garth Ennis before he just started making everything uh, some version of a World War II comic that he just keeps <laughs> doing. I mean, this is the era that I love, and this is actually a super fun book. And you're right, the art's gorgeous. The coloring on it, I know that was one of the big things that made Top Cow so good was they actually had one of the best coloring houses and you can see it just like jumps off the page it's incredible well you know it's funny though you mentioned the garth ennis thing i just want to say because we, we just reviewed hitman on one of our mini episodes and that was just so fun and so wacky and what i felt like was the art matched the story in hitman mm-hmm. i don't think the art matches garth ennis's style i don't sylvester is too like clean and beautiful and elegant and garth ennis tends to like want to drop in these crazy things and it just kind of looks stilted you don't get the impact of what he has written like there's this funny thing at the end of the second issue where it's like we must stop him from having sex oh yeah <laughs> like, i forgot about that which is hilarious <laughs> but it does, it looks so serious uh, but just how i felt about like all-star batman like those two separate are amazing and then together it was a strange blend but I, I remember liking this book a lot too and i was into like nine inch nails at this time and things <laughs> and i would i would rip a lot of these artists off i i would i wanted to be an artist so bad and i would just come up with these crazy characters with you know a clown head and a machine gun that looked like something <laughs> from the cover of wizard with you know the bullet, bullet casings everywhere so this was the period when i was like oh yeah maybe i like this instead of spider-man but it was short-lived <laughs> so was this run it was only like 11 issues or something before ennis was gone and then like david wool and christine z took over i think justin did you have a darkness take unfortunately i don't i i was aware of it I think so when image first launched, I bought literally everything that they put out. Like I had at least two copies of uh, tribe number one by Larry Stroman. <laughs> but by this point, I think I had moved away. I, I had started like picking up things like Sandman a little bit more and moving into more writer driven comics. So I was not really on board the top cow train by this point. Okay. Well, now we talked to TJ over here. He's Mr. DC at this moment in time. So we got to believe he was picking up this next book. Major League is an exploration of Grant Morrison's upcoming Justice League relaunch. Says Morrison, quote, for a long time, I've been really sick and tired of depressing, gritty superheroes and characters with long coats and stubble on their faces. And now that sort of dark age of comics is coming to an end. We're starting to see superheroes you could look up to again. Editor Ruben Diaz comments on the selection process for the powerhouse roster stating quote we realized that putting anyone but the icons in the book was like putting four musicians in bowl cuts and calling them the Beatles a very timely reference there Ruben (laughs) further commenting on his new take Morrison says quote the Justice League to me has a slightly creepy element in the idea of these fantastic godlike beings sitting in a fortress and watching the world these are the pantheon of gods in the DC universe now as far as the threats to be faced by the Justice League names like the Shaggy Man Starro, Starbreaker, the Cosmic Vampire. These are all thrown around, as well as Dr. Destiny, who opens up the door to imaginary stories like, quote, Superman as Green Lantern of Krypton and stuff like that. Honestly, if that is one of the issues I need to know, I want to find that one. It is. It is. Oh, he did it. Yeah, I, I, all of these happen. Every single one of those things is in the first like year and a half of this book. And it's awesome. Was this like a big one for you, TJ? I'm sure it was being promoted in the books you were buying from DC at the time. 
uh, I think I'd picked up a few Justice League books here and there, but I mean, this was a team that had like, I think Wonder Woman was the still on it. And then like 90s Hawkman, Blue Devil with all the crazy gold armor, Metamorpho, all these kind of like random characters. They were running around with a little blue pterodactyl alien named Yaz. Um, <laughs> this all sounds made up. It's not, I swear. <laughs> so yeah, they got rid of all those guys. We're like, we should actually put, um, you know, our famous characters in our flagship book. And it blew my mind. And the, the cool thing about this book also is that it is pretty much, I'd say, where this idea that Batman can beat everybody came from uh i mean a little bit from dark knight uh frank miller but this is really where it's like he he can't just like he doesn't just know how to take superman out he also knows how to take everybody else out it's that cool hyper clan story in the beginning it's very old school sci-fi and yeah shaggy man's in it uh there's a starro <laughs> thing it, and these are characters i did not know of but it also does the thing that that you mentioned the superman as as green lantern it's all these kind of imaginary story things which is what morrison then did with batman later on because he wanted to do that crazy purple and red zuran law batman and all that stuff so yeah, let, let me read this quote real quick on morrison's take on batman he says the complete outsider but absolutely essential we wanted to have him as a consultant even if he's not active if the jla's got a problem they just send it to batman and he works it out in five minutes but batman doesn't want to work with anyone because as far as he's concerned it's like having seven robins beside him just a bunch of hanger-ons who will make him a target account manager batman yeah (laughs) (laughs) now justin there is an ad right next to the end of this article here and you wanted to make a mention of this it is totally off topic but it caught your attention oh boy so right in the middle of this article there's an ad for techno comics and all power to techno comics They must have been spending quite a bit of money with Wizard because they get mentioned a lot in this issue. (laughs) But this ad is all text. And if there's two fonts, there must be 25 fonts in this ad. (laughs) And it's literally almost impossible to read. And it's so 1996, but also completely insane. This is the most perfectly 90s advertisement. You're right. It, it is every font but wingdings. If some of the fonts were like metal embossed or, or neon, it would be a little bit better, but it's pretty good. It's pretty good. But yeah, but you're right. Because they keep they basically have this series of ads that says what it takes, number 57. What's it take to make a great comic book? So they have this one, and I can't remember if it's this, this issue or the issue before, but the other one is they're promoting their uh, From Dusk Till Dawn adaptation. What does it take to make a great comic book? Vampire strippers. That's all you need. (laughs) Mm. Anybody else have a thought on the the Justice League this era? This is the most must-read DC book of this era. Um, Hands down, his whole run is is awesome. And it it is, you know, they get into that Pantheon stuff. He really gets into that even more. There winds up being 12 guys or 12 people on the team. And uh, I think think there's a later article in Wizard where they actually line them up and and run down like, oh, this is is Zeus and this is whatever. uh, yeah, it's it's um, and Porter's art's beautiful. It might it might be one of the perfect comic runs of the time, which is yeah. impressive because it has electric Superman in it. clearly foisted on them yeah for sure i will say with obviously they're thinking about you know these kind of mythological layers of of superheroes and that's something that you know they do really really well i did go back and read this later much much later as an adult and it holds up i wish i'd read it at the time 
Well, what I'm curious to know then, if JLA was a must read in the 90s, how about Legion of Superheroes? Because the future is history is basically a Cliff Notes version of the history of the Legion, starting from the Super Team's reboot during Zero Hour and continuity, which had already been disastrously uh, retconned by Keith Giffen in 1989. Later, we were talking about not liking to erase the continuity while DC just kept doing it. Now, amazingly, there were still two Legion titles being published. There was Legion of Superheroes proper and Legionnaires. So anybody, do we have a Legion fan among us? Before we jump into this, they have a whole sidebar about how confusing Legion continuity is. And then it says, don't start with the old issues because you'll be confused. Start with uh, the reboots, which are Legion of Superheroes number 62 and Legionnaires number 19. They didn't even reboot the numbering. Yes. <laughs> yes. They will restart a book at number one at the drop of a hat now. And the fact that they com- did a completely new continuity and kept the numbering is mm-hmm. such a, an artifact of an alien time. <laughs> Was it Pat or Brian who were huge? legion fans probably legion superheroes fans i I know steve definitely was Um, i'm sure i'm sure brian was too legion is a weird concept i I actually saw a bunch of comic writers on twitter i think earlier this week or last week kind of like talking about how they would reboot the legion because it's it's something that is so tied into its original era you know this sort of like goody goody like teenagers you know with self-consciously like goofy names and and kind of like it it's clearly such clearly a product of the 60s that anytime you try and take it out of that it just feels weird and i feel like dc has never found a way to to approach it and they certainly not for lack of trying um so this is actually good comics here i'm not going to put it up there with jla but i just read it earlier this year there's a couple collections that i bought justin ha i didn't get it from the library this time <laughs> and and you're right it's, it's impenetrable to try and figure out what has happened because zero hour happens everything reboots and then it's a totally fresh start but you're right the numbers are insane and i was having a conversation with former guest ben morris about this exact thing because he recommended this book to me it's really it's that teen drama thing which i feel like you can kind of go back and appreciate but everybody has that one teen teen comic that they loved and i get why this is one i think you could redo legion as just like a totally punk rock thing but i don't know if they would ever go that route because it's like we're the heroes we're not going to listen to our parents we're going to be the paragons of goodness in a terrible world i think it would be perfect right now uh but you'd have to really kind of go for it in a way that i don't think dc would or maybe even could yeah tj who was the artist because a lot of the art in this feature is very like cartoonish looking it almost looks like waringo but i don't know if it was him uh no it's um moy albert moy i think did a bunch of stuff and I think there's some Chris Sprouse in there, maybe here and there. Mm. Surprised they're not named in this article about them. It can bounce around where sometimes it's almost like too unhinged and cartoony, where it's like, this doesn't really feel right anymore. But overall, this is a pretty fun book in that teen you know, dynamics where it's like, oh, they're fighting crime and, and but also learning about each other. And this one doesn't like aliens, which is funny because they're on an alien team and all that kind of craziness. 
Ben is Check it out, out at the library. Don't pay for this stuff if you don't have to. That's, that's my message, man. But don't oh, take my God. word for it. <laughs> the next one here, though, this is uh, the main event, guys. This is the carrot I dangled in front of all of you as our guest to get you booked on the show because Killing Machine is a hype piece about the upcoming Onslaught storyline in the X-Men comics and throughout the Marvel Universe. And so at this time, Wizard reports the quote, Marvel refuses to break its vow of silence, but Onslaught's identity will reportedly be revealed in X-Men number 54. So before we get into all the discussion, what did you guys think of the reveal of Onslaught's identity at the time? Was that an exciting concept to you? The entire reason we're here is because you were talking about Onslaught, I think on, a, on Instagram, Adam, and I jumped in and I said, I'm the Onslaught defender. I love the reveal of Onslaught's identity. And when I think of Onslaught, that's basically all I think of because <laughs> I actually, to prepare for this, I got out of the library an Onslaught volume. And I thought it was like the whole omnibus thing, but it was, so it was like Onslaught versus the Marvel universe and like some of the last things. And boy, nothing happened in the actual <laughs> comics. In the It was, it's literally like they just punch him and then he turns into a cloud and then they run into the cloud and that's the book. <laughs> Justin, may I just say that I hated the Onslaught reveal and that's all I remember. And I bought the Omnibus um, Ooh, as well. Wow. Oh, dang. And it is gigantic. Do you remember all this? How much there was? How far Look back did they start? Thing. Is it like when people start showing up with like Onslaught on their foreheads and stuff? Oh, yeah. my Lord. Well, it wow. starts with a lot of prose and a lot of oh. just copy about where things started. There's an excerpt from Uncanny X-Men 287. There's a previously on. There's a cable 32 is where yeah. it starts. It is like two war and pieces it is. <laughs> and it's going back to Amazon as soon as this conversation is over. Oh, I think you okay. could. Yeah. Give, give it a little time. You could. Those sell for okay. big money. Okay. So we're going to have a, a knockdown drag out fight now about the, the actual reveal in X-Men 54. So I obviously at the time to give a little background to, to the listeners way back they established that there was an X-Men trader who had mm -hmm. destroyed the X-Men. They showed like this footage of Jean Grey sending a message into the future. And Bishop had known this in the future, came back, was going to stop the X-Trader. He thought it was Gambit. It wasn't. And then it just died. It like it went nowhere for years. And then, so the big hook of Onslaught, at least leading into it, was that they were going to reveal the X-Trader. And then it was Professor X. And I thought that was really cool. Um, they walked it back so hard immediately because it's not really Professor X. Right. It's Magneto's psyche had infected Professor X and then it broke off into its own entity that was separate from him. The idea of Professor X sort of like giving into, you know, his dark side and his anger about the fact that his dream had never really manifested the way it, he wanted it to. And then he, you know, turns into this like malevolent force, I think is super cool. And for a moment in time in that X-Men 54 issue, that was what it feel, felt like they were huh. doing. Didn't he also, they revealed like he had some like lust for Jean Grey. As yeah, a, the less said about that, the better. <laughs> but, the, but that was part of it, right? Because I did try to reread this. I really did. And I couldn't um, because it was so big. <laughs> there was so much of it. It's very difficult to follow, especially now. 
well, let me mention this real quick because you know there are obviously the, the the repercussions of what was happening because of onslaught and how it spills over into the marvel universe you know it starts in those x-men books like you're saying justin and then it just becomes this thing where onslaught is taking over new york city and he's got sentinels under his control and everybody's fighting sentinels so i read a few of the tie-in issues and the one i wanted to read the most was green goblin oh my God. Do, do you remember yeah i read that one you're at green goblin okay and in that story onslaught is the reason that the green goblin has to retire that is the reason why the next issue his series ends because a sentinel blasts him a piece of rock damages his cybernetic mask goblin mask damages his glider and the green goblin is no more the, the other reason that's, that that series was canceled was because it's a terrible idea <laughs> Adam, that's certainly of a piece of at some point in Marvel editorial, they're like, hey, we've got Onslaught. Let's use it to do anything we want to do. So obviously they shove all of the the Marvel heroes who are going to be in Heroes Reborn into the magic onslaught hole. And then they come out the other side, drawn by Rob Liefeld and, and Jim Lee. But so it kind of makes sense that they're like, well, what other books can we <laughs> clean up and cancel using this magic uh, eraser known as Onslaught? The, the one great thing about this onslaught uh, compendium um, omnibus is at the end, there are all these supplementary things like these, you know, letters to the staff about what is onslaught's goal and just the oh. talking points and the story beats that is confusing. Like trying to break it down is confusing. I think it's Scott LaBelle and maybe Mark Wade. Yeah. I um, forgot that Mark Wade wrote this at the yeah. height of his kingdom come powers. Yeah, so I, I read, I got Justin B, again, from the library, the first two, there's apparently three trades that I think make up that enormous book that Chris has. And so I saw the Green Goblin thing. Um, I did see that that reveal that you were talking about where they're like, oh, it, it is Professor X and kind of all this craziness. The only context I had for this at the time, though, was reading Wizard and just always being like, wait, what's going to happen? This is going on. Um, but those those X-Men mysteries were such an interesting thing to see from a distance from you know because i never really got into x-men at this time and it was always there was always these lists of like who's the x trader who's the third summer's brother a million other ones and i just remember that being so interesting uh, but n but not interesting enough to get me to read most of these books because like you said this this series is impenetrable to get into mm -hmm. and then the payoff at the end is you're right they walk through a, a like a glowing hole and it's just, and it, it, I was impressed that they seeded the end of it though, because, because I just started reading all the heroes reborn stuff. I didn't, I didn't read any of the onslaught. Um, so I didn't know that they had already figured out the out, which was Franklin Richards and his blue ball, which are in that like last, last page of the last issue. Uh, so that was interesting. Which is like, a, is that a St. Elsewhere <laughs> thing? How great would it be if he could just shake it and then they would have earthquakes? <laughs> Why does Franklin carry that snow globe around with him everywhere? It doesn't make any yeah. sense. It was it was characters. It, it was impenetrable, but also impenetrable to a kid pre-internet yeah. in a town where comics were hard to come by anyway. And when they would come, might be scattershot. You know, it's like check out this issue. You know, all these the editor's notes are insane on this. <laughs> I Justin, I, I have to ask you this because uh, you know I I didn't read any onslaught at the time. Again, I was like TJ. I was reading it in Wizard. I'm like, okay, here's the latest update and all of that. But the first time I read any onslaught comics, I recently got from you the onslaught X Men and onslaught Marvel Universe. These specials got from you while you were cleaning out your comic book collection. So were those ones you bought at the time? Did you get them from the Wizard Warehouse? Like, where did those issues come from? <laughs> Oh no, I bought I bought those at the time and they sat 
in my basement for decades. And then I finally <laughs> got rid of all of my 90s comics. And many times since I've gotten rid of them, I'm, I have wished that I had them around, which I never thought I would. Um, but no, I was, I was, X-Men was my thing. So I was from the first X-Men issue, which I bought in the comic shop, which was like right before um, X-Men number one, uh, it was like the last one, which was a very confusing place to jump on because it was wrapping up whatever the other storyline was. I bought every single X-Men and Uncanny issue from then up until I did uh, end up at Wizard. And then there was some really dire X-Men runs. And also I was getting everything for free at the Wizard Library. So that was what finally pushed me off of it. But X-Men was very much my my core uh identity as a comics collector so i was getting these at the time i was loving it you know in retrospect as we were talking through this i think what i really like about onslaught and what sticks with me is you know what the story could have been and sort of like felt like at the time which is oh my god they're really going for it and they're making professor x the the villain here obviously that was not exactly what the story ended up being but it could have been really cool they just uh i'm, I'm not here to second guess anybody <laughs> Obviously, they were serving a lot of different masters with this, but they, they, it was, they, they could have stuck with it a little bit more. Yeah, I, I stuck with it. I also identify as an X-Men fan from that period. And one of the issues I kept was Uncanny uh, 334, uh, the Joe Mad art. Again, I was like a Joe Mad super fan. And this, this series was a turning point, too. I was really holding on to comics. I was a freshman in high school. So, you know, I stuck through, I guess, would have been Age of Apocalypse and some of those things. And then this was losing me, you know, and the license was calling and, uh, you know, Nine Inch Nails <laughs> was calling. <laughs> and it was just kind of the last straw in some ways, too. So I have some some fondness for it because... You know, Spider-Man, well, I guess this is 72 with the John Romita Jr. art is incredible. But then on the cover, it's like Onslaught, Impact 2. What is that? Yeah. What is Impact 1? The answer at last, the beginning of Onslaught, Impact 1. What does that mean? <laughs> I was so confused that this is really was my last hurrah as a comic fan until I guess I worked at Wizard <laughs> Magazine. <laughs> wow. You know, you're becoming a, you're becoming a young man. And uh, the internet was on the horizon and it was happening and it was time to give Mark Wade a little break. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, Adam, this is clearly uh, an unwieldy amount of wizard people to be on a podcast, but this is a very close approximation of the conversations that we would have at the lunch table at lunch. back in the, in the wizard warehouse. We would talk comics while we ate and or I missed that quite a bit. Even the aforementioned Taco Bell that Pat talked about, uh, you know, we would still go there for lunch too sometimes. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I love that we're getting that vibe here. Now, let's close out this section, though, guys, with a guy who was known for his opinions as well, especially at this time. There's a wizard Q&A with Frank Miller, oh. and he is a, obviously a legendary writer and artist, but at this time... He was giving some harsh criticisms, people felt, of the comics industry in general. Miller explains really to the readers why they are just now hearing his honest opinions. Quote, for a long time, there was a real code of silence, but finally the old brand loyalty has been broken and now people are able to speak more freely and actually get listened to. So Miller is asked about his harsh views on Marvel and responds, quote, they don't even call themselves a publisher anymore. Now it's Marvel Entertainment. So my Marvel bashing days are over because there's nothing to bash. I knew when John Meter Sr. left, it was over. So there you go. A little callback to our 
news bit there. Now, commenting on Lee and Liefeld returning to Marvel, Miller says, quote, they created such a ruckus about how they were breaking away and creating something new with Image Comics. It's not something that makes me angry. It's just very disappointing. I felt like I made a fool of myself standing up for those guys. Mostly, I fear for those guys. Climbing onto the ship of the Titanic isn't exactly the way to save yourself. <laughs> now, ironically, there is a very splashy ad for Extreme Studios on the opposite page of this commentary. So. <laughs> yeah, I saw that too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, Miller has nothing but good things to say about DC, however. He says, quote, they've made some pretty gutsy moves in the last few years. I mean, DC Comics publishes Stuck Rubber Baby? How the world has changed. Anybody? Stuck Rubber Baby? Have we found this comic? Have we read this comic? Oh, I remember seeing it in Wizard. Uh, I don't remember anything <laughs> about it, but that title, I was like, oh yeah, what? What? reading these, these issues was just all these echoes of old things that I remembered hearing about and always being like, I should check that out at some point uh, when I get money. <laughs> yeah, now he goes on to say they've got what I believe are the only two characters that are going to last forever with Batman and Superman. They've got probably the best production department in comics, so he thinks DC is the place to be. But do you guys have any other takeaways from this interview or Frank Miller stories? So I thought it was hilarious that the setup to this interview is Frank Miller is famously an unopinionated person. <laughs> Because as long as I've been paying attention, Frank Miller is just known for for speaking his mind. I mean, there's a a very famous uh, episode, obviously, where Frank Miller stood on stage at, I think, San Diego Comic-Con or or something like that and tore up an issue of Wizard Magazine. Adam, I'm sure you're very familiar with that. Oh, yeah. So my my favorite anecdote about that is when he stood on stage, uh, Frank Miller said, Hollywood doesn't read comic books anymore. They read Wizard Magazine. And that quote was printed out and hung on the wall near the bullpen of Wizard Magazine <laughs> because the Wizard did not take that as an insult. They took it as a, as a point of pride. Well, I believe That's that fair. quote also ends with when you lay, lay down with dogs, you get fleas. There was, it, there was more to that rant. Yes. There were a lot oh, of fleas boy. at 151 Wells Avenue. <laughs> yes, that's for sure. You know, they, Jim and uh, Frank worked together on All-Star Batman. I was talking to somebody yesterday about this and telling another one of my stories no one believes, which <laughs> is that when I was the DC beat, All-Star Batman, All-Star Superman were coming out and we were devoting a huge chunk of the issue to like this feature. And I did this long interview with Jeff Loeb and Jim Lee. We're going to write um, that book, that Batman book, got Jim Lee sketches. The 11th hour before we go to press, stop everything. Brian Cunningham's like, something's going on. Something happened and we wouldn't know what, and they wouldn't tell us who the new writer was. And I mean, come to find out it was Frank Miller and he wasn't talking to us. So how are we going to cover this? I think the deal that was brokered, would he only talk to Mike Cotton? Was that the, how they got that coverage? Because I got taken off that pretty quick (laughs) after uh, they announced that it was going to be Frank Miller and Jim Lee. So we had to scrap everything. And uh, kind of start over. We need we need that lost interview, Chris. Where is that interview with Jeff? Lowe I've got him. his plans. I've got all that stuff That's and my there. unpublished uh, Rob Liefeld profile. <laughs> That's the cover story right there. It's a good one. But speaking of that infamous quote, you know, Miller also comments on why he has moved away from writing Hollywood scripts to focus on Sin City and Martha Washington comics because he's just having a great time. Hard boiled, I think, was his other one. He's just loving it. But, uh, you know, speaking of Hollywood, let's see what was going on in La La Land at this time as we get into some Heroes in Motion.
All right, guys. So first up here, Lou Ferrigno is playing the Hulk again. This time in the new animated series with future Dum Dum Dugan and CW supervillain yeah. Neil McDonough voicing Bruce Banner, which I never knew. I had no idea that he was Bruce Banner on that series. But Ferrigno is providing the grunts and growls of the Jade Giant. Ferrigno admits to trying to get the Hulk to speak on the old Bill Bixby series, but never succeeded. Though, according to the story editor for this animated series, Greg Johnson, this won't exactly be shaped. Shakespeare, guys. Quote, our Hulk is even less intelligent than the Savage Hulk. He's a lot more limited as far as dialogue goes. He barely says four words in a row. <laughs> Get Lou on the phone. <laughs> oh, poor Lou. But other cast members included Luke Perry as Rick Jones, which I did remember. John Vernon as General Thunderbolt Ross. Mark Hamill as Gargoyle. And Matt Frewer as the leader. Do you guys have fond memories of this era of Hulk hype and this cartoon, the action figure series, any of it? I definitely watched this cartoon. I believe it was on UPN. This yep. is the weirdest thing. I like. I love Superman. I did not watch that show. But any other random random weird little thing that would be on i would watch ultra force this show she hulk <laughs> wound up being the co-lead uh, later on yeah uh, i loved all that stuff i don't even know i guess i knew lou was the voice uh, but Neil McDonough, that's pretty funny. <laughs> this is kind of funny, but we didn't have UPN in my hometown because also MTV was banned in my hometown. Wow. <laughs> because they felt it was corrupting the youth. So hard no on MTV and UPN in Illinois. <laughs> Homeboys in outer space corrupting the youth of Illinois. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The secret diary of Desmond Pfeiffer <laughs> was not seen uh, but in my hometown. With the uh, Marvel animation news here, guys, we get the first announcement of a ghostwriter cartoon being in development from a guy who wrote episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation and Walker, Texas Ranger. But of course, it never sees the light of day or the fire on the skull. We never get any of that in animated form other than guest appearances on other Marvel cartoons. But uh, can you guys imagine like a ghostwriter in the style of Spider-Man the Animated Series? Like I can only see it as, as like, you know, HBO Spawn. That would have been cool, but they were never going to do that. I, I, this is one that I one of those things that I thought did happen for the longest time because they came out with a toy line right and so the toy i was like oh wait i must have just not seen it but they had like vengeance figures and like zarathos <laughs> adam yes i've got a i've got a question for you do you get like a mandela effect from reading old wizards where <laughs> you aren't sure what came out or because a lot of this stuff they got written about never happened yeah. yeah when we report on it here we always like to do it in the timeline and say this is what we were excited about oh isn't this cool and then like yeah a couple issues later we find out oh oh okay <laughs> <laughs> now we see what really happens so <laughs> occasionally we look ahead but at this point we try to live in 96 and say oh it's coming guys it's coming <laughs> it's a good year to pick <laughs> speaking of which though a live action Avengerland film based on the maximum press comic book is reportedly an active development at New Line Cinema with Natasha Hedstridge from Species being eyed for the lead. Uh, this seems to be all about who you know, though, because as is reported here, New Line's director of development, Brian Witten, is also Rob Liefeld's production company partner and is currently writing the Chapel comic at Extreme Studios. So he's going to push that to the front of the line, right? Then we're making this Evangeline movie. Uh, but actually, Rob says he is shopping Evangeline around again. He's got that profit movie in development 
development and now Evangeline is the next one. So yeah, I don't think he's ever stopped shopping Evangeline <laughs> around a character that nobody knows anything about. No, I, I feel so bad for Rob because I feel like he's the portrait of Dorian Gray to like Mark Miller. Like Mark Miller can can sneeze anything out and it turns into a, a movie or a TV series. Rob, like, do you remember when Dooms 4 was going to be directed by Steven Spielberg? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like nothing. You lost me and I feel so bad for Rob. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm good too. Was it Shrink with Jennifer Lopez who was going to be the superhero yes. shrink and it was a sh- also a shrinking uh, i can't even talk about it it's so dumb wow that i've is, never heard of that one those it, guys were just selling ideas like <laughs> they were the the original nft just like selling <laughs> nothing to people saying this is going to be worth something it was not good <laughs> well it's amazing to think that you could say i sold x million comic books turn it into a movie and the only person that yeah. ever managed to do it was todd right and everybody else is like oh well <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah it was a wild uh, west now on the dc side speaking of films that never got made in this era ivan reitman was apparently developing a wonder woman movie to be written by someone named kimberly reed of course years later during the time of your run in congers guys the question of who will play wonder woman actually makes the cover of wizard you have all the literal hot actresses in hollywood on the cover uh, do you guys have any memories of that era of speculation when we had a certain creator of buffy the vampire slayer future avengers director didn't he uh, say yeah. at this point, at some point after that, that he was going to hire Kobe Smulders? I, f- I feel like that was who Joss was going to, and he, he said it at one point, and she acknowledged it. So, so many know. women who almost played Wonder Woman. We need the Wonder Woman multiverse movie now. Wonder <laughs> Women, do it. <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> Now, to the bat polls, that is to say, a wizard ran a poll asking the users on the AOL wizard world who their favorite live action Batman actor was. And this is how the results shook out, guys. We hadn't even seen him in costume yet, but George Clooney got 5%. Adam West, just 12%. In an unbelievably close race for the top spot, though, Michael Keaton beat Val Kilmer's 41% by scoring 42%. Uh, So he was the true fan favorite batman so do you guys have any theories <laughs> as to why these were the results in yes i have a theory these results skew towards the kind of people using aol messenger in <laughs> 1996 <laughs> and their batman was val kilmer and michael keaton but i didn't appreciate adam west at that age i didn't get it there's certainly some recency bias at play here but this was also the era of the radioactive man episode of the simpsons right so mm-hmm. that's kind of like how people felt about the adam west thing at the time that it was like so campy and awful yeah but now obviously we can recognize it for the genius that it is it was also almost impossible to see at this point like i watched it as a kid but mm-hmm. it wasn't on anywhere mm-hmm. in 96 mm-hmm. now what's interesting here though is speaking of the batman movie being the main channel for people to get in on the fandom holy bat lawsuit should be the title (laughs) of our next news piece because as reported last issue david copperfield won an auction for what he thought was a screen used batmobile but it turned out to be an illusion (laughs) oh the tables have been turned no because he paid one hundred ninety thousand dollars for what turned out to be just a promotional car that was probably parked out in front of movie theaters uh the illusionist is suing the butterfield auction house 
else who are now countersuing him. I'm curious with you guys, have you ever been duped on a collectible in that way? Have you ever been like, oh, I got it. Oh, man. Not what I, I mean, thought. we were complicit in duping people with collectibles. <laughs> uh, I don't know what the statute of limitations is on that, Chris. Uh, <laughs> Especially now, I don't buy almost anything. I go to the library. Boom. I just, I, I had never heard this before that David Copperfield got duped by this that's just really funny to me I know, i'm waiting to see in the next issue if we get the follow-up to how that played out you know like david copperfield owns butterfield you know whatever <laughs> this was mentioned on a podcast i listened to like a week ago so when i read this i was like no way uh, i don't know if anybody listens to pendulette's podcast but he had like david copperfield's right hand man on two-ish weeks ago if you want to go back and look at yeah, it I and he mentioned out. it real quickly i mean they didn't really get into it but he, they yeah. laughed at it too that he bought the wrong bad can, can I read you this headline from the Los Angeles Times, 1996? Absolutely. Disillusioned magician sues over Batmobile buy. <laughs> I would have oh, been proud man. of that headline. That's, That's really good. Now, lastly here, guys, you know, fans of the Marvel Studios films have been anxiously awaiting the arrival of the Fantastic Four, the MCU. We just got teased in Doctor Strange 2 and the Multiverse of Madness. But at this time, Wizard was presenting a casting call for a live action Fantastic Four movie featuring the stars of the 90s that were available. So let's get into this here. Let's take a look at the ideas, what was floating around the office. So I'm going to read the intro. It says, with all the hoopla about Jim Lee drawn Fantastic Four, it stands to reason that a good FF movie should be in the works. As many might remember, there was a low-budget, god-awful FF movie made, but never released about two years ago. Apologies to our old co-host, Steven Sapelis, super fan of that film. So who would we cast as the fateful four that get bombarded by cosmic rays as well as their supporting cast and villains? Follow us, and we'll show you. Now, what's interesting is they usually pitch a director, and it's odd that they don't mention the fact that Chris Columbus was trying to get both a Daredevil and a Fantastic Four movie off the ground at Fox at this oh. time. So, but first up for the one and only Sue Storm, the Invisible Woman, they want <laughs> someone I have never heard of because I didn't watch a lot of NYPD Blue, Gail O'Grady. We think she's perfect when not dressed like a gaudy 70s nightmare. <laughs> this is so weird to me because, like, yeah, 96, anybody could have been put in for Sue Storm and they went with I think somebody on staff must have watched a ton of NYPD Blue because yeah. they're all over the place. Didn't, did you just post one online recently where it was going to be um, uh, yeah, the David redheaded guy? Caruso for Rorschach and Watchmen yeah. and uh, Dennis <clears throat> Farina for the comedian. Yes. They're just like everybody from NYPD Blue. And Franz Please. is right over here. Yeah, I, I, will, I will add something to this that I just thought about which is kind of interesting. Back when they did these, they had to at least get a photo of that person that would match yeah, what was going on. And if you could couldn't find it from a photo house, not the internet. You had to call places and get photo proof sent to you and find these, right? They used to send out envelopes of photos from movies. Maybe NYPD had like a really good press kit. It wouldn't surprise me, honestly. Yeah, well, and Brian like says it was all Dan Riley's job. So, uh, you know, as king of research, he was the one who had to seek all these out. So he did a pretty good job considering, yeah, the constraints of the era. But Justin, yeah. who do we have up here for uh, Reed Richards? Reed Richards, we've got Mark Harmon, who they say, forget about summer school in the Presidio. Uh, no problem there. Because I don't know what those are. <laughs> I love summer school. Summer school time great. on Saint Elsewhere. Sort of a, a weird thing to say to the legion of uh, teenagers who are reading this. Think about his time on Saint Elsewhere. <laughs> well, got- you know, Saint Elsewhere had just appeared in Onslaught. So, <laughs> <laughs> callback. They knew they knew. <laughs> I gotta say, in general, 
this, these are pretty good casting call choices, but it's so funny to look at these three pages and look at just entirely white people and <laughs> realize that this is why yes. casting needs to get more creative and it's a good thing no matter what fanboys say. Yeah, they're yeah. definitely sticky with the source material on this one. Who did they have for the thing, TJ? Dennis Franz, a gruff personality and voice is needed here, so why not Dennis Franz, NYPD Blue? We'd top it off by getting ILM to create an animatronic body for Mr. Grimm. I, wow, that's, that's an animatronic straight, that's, thing that's a good one. instead of CG. Wow. Oh, yeah. It is, CG would have been terrible. Well, I'm, I'm, <laughs> why? Well, we're, we're in a post-Jurassic Park world. They could have done it. We're in I, a post-Ninja Turtles but... the movie world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So everybody says post-Jurassic Park, but nobody else had good effects then. Spielberg put so much money into that. And unless it was a dinosaur, I mean. <laughs> Ooh, we watched the Spawn movie recently. That was oh. rough. Those guys, they're the ones who convinced Spielberg to go with CGI for the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. Wow. That's how they got the gig <laughs> on Spawn to direct. Michael J. White stiff army at a, my first <laughs> Wizard World convention. <laughs> As if when I was a, a freshman, wow. I'm like, can I get an autograph? And he's like, no time and jumped in a limo. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you know, we're, we're getting off the NYPD blue <laughs> casting here. Chris, who do we have for the human torch? Oh, the human torch timeout. Let's face it. Mm. Mark Paul Gosler, Saved by the Bell, is a dopey teen actor. Huh, they don't know. <laughs> and for Johnny Storm, we need a dopey teen actor. Who else could pull off yelling flame on with a straight face? I know what that joke is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't condone it. Um, yeah, this one's a couple of years late, unless this is his. Well, this is know, the college years. Saved by the Bell, the college years was going on. But uh, no, actually, he was about to be on NYPD Blue. But we thought we were going <laughs> to what? what are they doing? The crazy thing is, though, when they cast a Gen 13 movie a couple issues back, he was burnout. So ah. they just want him to play every fiery teenage character. I was it the same photo? <laughs> yeah, same photo. Okay. <laughs> now for Dr. Doom here, Jeremy Irons would be perfectly evil as Victor Von Doom. He's got a cool accent and everything. And yes. Eventually ended up playing Ozymandias on uh, mm -hmm. the Watchmen TV series. series. Yeah. I was going to say he was the bad guy in Dungeons and Dragons, um, <laughs> <laughs> which he's very good in. He knows what kind of movie he's in. It's really bad. And he's very good in everything he does. So I think this is perfect as well oh, he would have been good yeah every once in a while the wizard guys they're they're very good at this but they just throw their hands up and they're like we don't care there are no four-year-old actors we'll just <laughs> pretend that brian bonsell is still four years old from family ties even though he's probably like 25 at this point and he's in jail so there you go oh, Poor brian bonsell. Oh. oh it doesn't always end well but i what sticks out to me the most is they pulled a panel from a john bird fantastic four comic and john bird cannot draw children i've noticed this in next man and all whenever he does flashbacks they always yeah they're just like squished adults they look terrible why is yeah, the troll here <laughs> justin give us galactus i refuse to do the accent that they write out phonetically here <laughs> wow that's worse than someone writing out rogues accent phonetically oh. <laughs> they say so marlon brando from the godfather and don juan demarco <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Won't be talking be. like that. He'll have his distinctive vo booming voice while eating planets and stuff. I guess we saw this giant mm. floating head in the Superman movies. So a lot of those guys were big fans of Superman the movie for sure. But would it be think, lazier to say James ideal. Earl Jones just for the voice? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I'm trying to think who would be a good Galactus from that era. 
and I can't. David, David Duchovny. <laughs> David Duchovny. <laughs> Most lackadaisical. Oh, just like Christopher Walken. Yeah, gonna straight up Christopher Walken. <laughs> All right. And speaking of Galactus, we have to have his herald. So TJ, who have they chosen? Robert Patrick has already kind of silvery in Terminator 2, thanks to top-notch special effects, and can act kind of like an introspective type. So why not combine the two for this Zen Law native? Have you guys seen the footage of the CGI Silver Surfer? Yeah. The- it's really awesome. cool. Yeah. yeah, I would have chosen Billy Zane, but I don't think <laughs> he's bald. He at this time had hair, I believe. But he so shaved his head to be in the Phantom costume for yeah. the movie, which was just oh, coming out at this okay. time. So, so they couldn't afford him. <laughs> then for another Herald of Galactus, Chris, who do they have here? Helen Hunt. <laughs> Helen Hunt is Galactus's Herald. She's mad about you. Oh, sorry. Terax. <laughs> Former WWF wrestler Jesse the Body Ventura, Predator. <laughs> I think they meant the movie. Would be excellent at the axe wielding. Would be excellent as the axe wielding world conqueror. I mean, I feel like Jesse Ventura is the one hero we haven't lost, right? Because was he ever actually a hero? Oh, okay. just, <laughs> has he been canceled? <laughs> I don't. I don't feel I, like I don't know. A, any big news because Jesse Ventura's always <laughs> been on the fringe, right? It's he, like he only hasn't been yeah. canceled because nobody pays attention to what happened like five <laughs> yeah, years ago. He's off yeah. the grid. That guy's no a stone his, cold psycho. His I know you're listening, Jesse. Yeah. Come at me. All right. Last year they have Alicia Masters, as previously mentioned, not the Herald of Galactus. They want Helen Hunt. <laughs> To play the blind girlfriend of the thing. And the, uh, I don't know. I don't, Again. I, I don't see her timid at all. Helen Hunt is not like a timid actress. No, but I, I want to imagine a universe where Helen Hunt plays Alicia Masters. It's just insane to me. <laughs> With Dennis Franz as the thing. I just realized that it's very TV centric mm-hmm. as far as like all the people. They can't yeah, imagine a movie weird. star is wanting to be in a comic book movie. That's true. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Who would be in it. this garbage? You. <laughs> they're, they're setting their sights low. You can't have a movie without a tie-in action figure line. And the fact that we have a Toy Fair editor with us. we so Two Toy Fair editors. Oh, that's right. What would? What we got the last and where did you fall, TJ? Officially, what do you know? Or what the last? I guess because <laughs> TJ was there near the bitter end. All right. Well, we're gonna get into some merch madness. <laughs> Adam, this is highly unorthodox, but before we jump into the toy section, yes, I want to make a detour to page 78, Homemade Heroes. And there's okay. a specific oh. reason. Oh, yeah. Which is every time I read a wizard magazine, I always look at the art contest and stuff to see if there are any famous names that pop up who got their start in the art contest. And in this issue's Homemade Heroes, the winner who created a Batman and Robin figure with cloth costumes was Charlie Flatt who would go on to create many, many custom Mego figures for Toy Fair magazine and create his own toy company where he created a Bela Lugosi Dracula uh, figure that was the basis for almost every single other Toy Fair custom that came after that. So wow. I just wanted to call that out. Big ups to Charlie piece Flatt. Of wizard he was, history. Yeah. yeah, he's a real piece of wizard history. And this is probably his first appearance in the pages of the, oh, wow. of the mag. Wow. This is the talent. I, I would like right to here. call out uh, Matt Skopansky of Springfield, <laughs> Illinois. And I think I knew his sister. 
<laughs> wow. Whoa. So many connections. It's a small world. <laughs> All right. But speaking of a small world, we only really have two bits of news, but they dominate. Is this the toy chest? What is it this time? Yeah, toy chest. Toy chest. yeah, because we were talking Star Wars and we're talking Spawn. That's all that we cared about. So in addition to the standard Star Wars figures that are coming out, there's a big list of those. Kenner is also releasing 12 inch figures, which they say are different than the ones that came out in the late 70s, which includes a picture of a very fluffy Chewbacca. <laughs> I would love to know. I'm assuming that's the mock-up that they did. That's not the one that hit shelves. But did any of these to your knowledge become major collectibles for some reason no i mean i I was never a 12 inch collector so these completely passed me by but (laughs) i don't recall if these were a big hit or not Okay, because speaking of those larger figures, McFarland Toys is also getting into the large figure game with a 13-inch Angela and a medieval spot of the same size, plus a 15-inch Violator. So ultimately, what did you guys think of oversized figures when those, I mean, Toy Biz, like, ran it into the ground? They were ridiculous with just reproducing their figures in a larger size. I think that I would have bet all the money I have that Wizard made a joke about the 15-inch Violator, and I can't believe that they did not. (laughs) Like I said, <laughs> toys are, are cyclical and there's like, you know, three major scales basically that just, they cycle through and everyone seems to have its moment in the sun. I just never got into the, into the big stuff. And maybe it's because mm-hmm. they're never as like detailed or as posable as, as the smaller things, but it just, it was never my style. I only like it when they're the right scale for my six inch figures or, or, you know, like the three and three quarters, like uh, Kenner did a cool rancor you know, in that scale that, that fit in with, you know, you can pick up Luke and all that stuff, but yeah, yeah, these, these big ones, they're just, and also there's, you know, they're more expensive and they take up more space. (laughs) Yeah. This is the time I was in the full throes of toy collecting and star Wars toys and the power of the force toys Mm -hmm. and hanging them on my wall. And, you know, I was already like a huge nerd and it was not cool in 1996 to hang (laughs) star Wars toys on your wall. It was not cool to paint space ghost on your wall. Probably. (laughs) But I was way into it. And even the the 12-inch figures got to be like, oh, these are almost dolls. And this is almost too much. You know, I felt like "Mm, these are action figures. And this is getting a little into what would be like the 40-year-old virgin territory like years later. For me personally, I was kind of wigged out by them. And they never looked as cool, like you said. And none of these were worth anything. And I recently gave them all to my nieces who ripped them open and had the best time. Wow. So (laughs) that was the the true value for me. My big takeaway from this month's toy chest is if you look at the wish list for toys, it's so quaint. It's almost charming. Like we want a Captain Mm -hmm. America toy. And this Captain Bane. America thing, I remember being a thing. And I think it even goes on to the first few issues of Toy Fair, too, because there was one from a Spider-Man line, but he was this weird roided out dude. And he had a teeny tiny little shield. Yeah, and it was insane. It's we have an embarrassment of riches now, but oh I gosh. still think they've never done a Centurion toy. I don't I think, think they so. finally did do a Jackal, though, in Marvel Legends, right? I want to say by now they must have with all those Spider-Man yeah. movies. Anyway, we're living in the golden age. So I'll take a <laughs> moment to appreciate sure. it. What I found interesting too, though, is they're reporting, you know, obviously Wizard has the action figure price guide. You know, that's that's a big part before Toy Fair is in existence. And the big time secondary market prices are reported on the larger short packed McFarland figures because obviously they take up too much mm-hmm. space. So they can only put like two Cygors in, you know, <laughs> or an exoskeleton spot or the Max. Uh, but it's interesting that with the Max, they say the contract has not been renewed by 
content creator Sam Keith, who is looking for somebody else to produce figures <laughs> of the Max Plus. Cutting ties with Todd was Rob Liefeld, who had taken his young blood license to Trend Masters. Yeah, he uh, sure showed him. Yeah. The only loyalist here is Will Spertasio sticking with McFarlane. A second wave of Wet Furks figures was on the way. But what I found most interesting is this is not an April Fool's issue, but the junk drawer video game section, the wizard staff is making goofy pitches for comic book themed video games instead of reporting on real ones at this time. So I thought it'd be fun if we took a read here. TJ, do you want to kick us off here with the Four Bushman 5000 Superhero Speedway? Man, those guys <laughs> loved old Marvel comics. I'll just put that out there as a way to <laughs> lay this one out. Uh, racing adventure. Uh, game type difficulty level adjustable all ages synopsis onslaught has captured aunt may's soul and is threatening to auction it off to the highest bidder bidders include thanos dark side mephisto doomsday and yes even sherman hemsley <laughs> as her soul hangs in the balance forbush man strikes a deal with onslaught a race will be held involving the world's greatest heroes and vehicles the catch, however, is that there can only be one victor. Only one hero will walk away with his life and his immortal soul. Oh, boy. Okay. Yada, yada, yada. You can choose between the Batmobile, the spider car. What? The four times as much fuel consuming fantastic car. The crass commercialism of the Spawnmobile. Bandit. <laughs> bandit. Uh, and his I will 19- say, to TJ's defense, he's he hangs out at the public library a lot. But these words in this column are very cramped in there. <laughs> Like ridiculously so, and you're in a very dark room. Oh my god, Herbie the Love Bug, General Lee, there it is, Scooby Doo Mystery Machine, and the race begins in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, for some reason. I love that Steve Brown, whoever that is, got paid for this. (laughs) (laughs) All right, who's next up? Okay, so this video game is called Bad Girls Ballpark, and the the premise here is that it's a sports game on medium difficulty, hard on the eyes. Shouldn't it be easy on the eyes? Isn't that the joke here? Yeah, because it's all bad girls like Lady Death and She and Razor and Artemis and Xena, and they're in a baseball game. Uh, it's photorealistic graphics is big ask for 96. And you play against other hero teams, including the Teensters, the Stuffs Shirts, ugh, and a teammate of every Legion member. A special battery backup lets you play an entire season right up to the famed World Series. Oh, that's just something he really wants. I thought there'd be like a little joke at the end. <laughs> I do like the image here of Lady Death that they put a glove and a hat on her. Like literally paste it on there. On a, on a yeah. paste up, <laughs> All right, Justin, what's next here? Next, we have the Great Hero Games 1997. And I've been reading this and I cannot tell you what it's about. So let's <laughs> see what happens when we read it out loud. <laughs> it's supposedly a sports game. And the synopsis is tired of fighting crime. The world's finest superheroes decide to take a few days off and make some much needed cash. The brainchild of perennially poor Peter Parker, say that five times fast, the great hero games will decide once and for all who is Earth's mightiest protector and make sure he or she is well paid. Events range from drunk deep sea fishing to nude arm wrestling to midnight bowling of a word that we don't say anymore to the infamous rotten egg toss with some 49 events and gameplay requiring gamers to actually bathe before competing. You'll test your medal against a horde of other heroes. Game variety enables up to four players to compete in the games as players can choose from the Hulk, Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, Ambush Bug, the Thing, 3D Man, the Heckler, Slapstick, Madcap, and more. I will say this and no uh, offense to Steve Brown. But there were some segments, some uh, columns of the magazine 
that the editors just did not care about that much. And I, this <laughs> has all the harm, hallmarks yes. to me of a section that has not been carefully edited. <laughs> this, I, I'm trying to get in Steve Brown's shoes. So it has the, the hallmarks of a writer rushing toward a word count, desperately trying to get there. And I'm not sure what it's about either. It's, it was like a lot of magic words letters you would get. Honestly. <laughs> they would read, they would read like this. They'd be like, here's an idea I have. And then it's just like <laughs> 800 words of, of this. And then I would print it. <laughs> well, let's see this final one here, how it, uh, it plays out. Only the short can save him a Micronauts adventure. This is a side scrolling adventure. Easy to learn, hard to master. The synopsis is in the classic tradition of the Atari 2600s microsurgeon, a United <laughs> task force of the planet's tiniest heroes is assigned a life or death mission. It seems the kingpin has inadvertently eaten Puck, and unless your team can retrieve the Alpha Flight member before Mr. Fisk digests him, Wolverine will further mutate and get even crabbier, while Alpha Flight will rename itself X-Alpha Flight and become the newest monthly X-Book on the block. Enlisted in your quest are the world's mightiest miniatures, Acroyer, Marionette, Bug, Ant-Man, Wasp, the Atom, and even Papa Smurf himself. Shrink down to a microscopic size and travel through the kingpin's grotesque internal landscape where you'll fight off plenty of angry red blood cells half digested cheese and even a rabid twinkie the kid okay i just want to say it's been 10 years since i've been a magazine editor but i am on the verge of grabbing a red pen and just going to town on this column (laughs) see justin i would come at it from a different angle which is that the approach is totally wrong it should have been like paragraph or two explaining what the idea is and then compare it to other games so people have context for what you're talking about and then even say like oh it'd be cool if they designed it as well which is how you do an article like this right so steve brown we got him (laughs) again we got you on the editorial end clearly nobody was paying attention (laughs) to this had it coming yeah. Well, you know, Steve Brown may have got a little bit on his own hype train there. And then we know a couple other guys who knew how to ride the rails. So it's time for Jim and Todd's Hype Machine. All right, so guys, the Spawn Animated Series finally has a voice for Al Simmons. It's none other than Keith David, yes. who seems to have no idea at all what Spawn is about. When he's yeah. quoted in this interview, he says, quote, he's sort of like Darth Vader fighting to get back to the Force. Yeah, what? No. Just let Keith David do whatever he wants, man. That's I was going to say, Keith David can say whatever he wants. Now, interestingly, Jim Lee lent his Freefall character from Gen 13 to Billy Tucci for the first issue of his Atomic Angel comic book. Now, I read this issue. The cameo makes sense because this was basically Tucci's attempt at capturing that California vibe with hip young heroes. And that's what it is. He's got this one character who's out there. He's a dude with a motorcycle. Freefall hitches a ride with him for reasons. And then he takes off for a mission and she's ticked off. I think he paid it back in that Gen 13 number 13. I think she shows up in that Oh, you're right. Maybe. Speaking of Gen 13, we get an update on the Gen 13 animated movie from producer, writer, director Kevin Altieri, who says production is halted because all of his animators are going to bigger projects in Hollywood, including his wife. (laughs) Can he keep his wife on board? Veteran animator Glenn Murakami and Steve Rude actually both provided character designs, but Murakami jumped ship to work on the previously discussed Superman cartoon, uh, but tried to keep a positive spin on the project Altieri says, quote, this is my best work yet. The fanboys are going to be excited. They'll like it a lot. 
once <laughs> when it's shown at a wizard world convention and never again uh, it's good it's good if you can see it i need someone to find out and tell us though if altieri and his wife are still together after oh, after no. this no if way. they survive <laughs> what just occurred to me too is nobody says fanboys anymore that's what everybody was called right that was the thing just, well, yeah. my, my kids say fangirling all the time now, like oh, just about anything. Huh. I was always really annoyed by it, so I'm glad that... Well, yeah, it was pretty dry. Uh, right. Now this crap is just the air that we breathe. It's every, every single <laughs> yeah, part right. yeah, I gotta yeah. say, though, so Russ Burlingame, who we've had on, he claims to have accidentally taken the Gen 13 screener copy that was sent to the wizard office's home with him after he left to... Bring uh, me the head of Russ Burlingame! <laughs> Um, so I, I'm negotiating with him to get that copy. He's like, I got it somewhere. It's unmarked, but I will find it and send it to you. I'm I like, have it on good authority that it's gettable and uh, there are two cuts. One is a little bit longer than the other, but I don't know why. <laughs> More shower scenes. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> All right. Well, we got to get to our tally here, guys. So in this issue, Jim Lee was mentioned six times. Todd McFarland was mentioned 10 times, which brings our running total from issue one of Wizard to issue 59. Jim Lee has been mentioned 327 times. Todd McFarland, 344. <laughs> hey, uh, spoiler alert. As you go on, one of those numbers is going to quit going up. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, guys, it is time to end with a little bit more wizard comedy. I don't think Steve Brown was involved in this one. <laughs> so it's time that we get into Turok's Top 10. So just as a little bit of context for you guys here. So Wizard had been oh, reporting there. in the last three or four issues that what we came to know as Heroes Reborn was being called Unfinished Business. That was going to be the, you know, the banner that the Lee and Liefeld books were going to be under. And it just is reported here that now it's been changed to Heroes Reborn. So what they have here is the top 10 rejected names for Unfinished Business, now Heroes Reborn. So Justin, you want to kick us off? Sure. Number 10. I feel like Letterman here. Here's hoping. Okay. TJ. This one's great. Number nine, Image East. <laughs> <laughs> Number eight, The Age of Apocalypse. Hey, Paul. <laughs> I said The Age of Apocalypse. <laughs> that's, yeah, a, yeah, that's a different yeah. crossover. <laughs> uh, you got any onslaught? <laughs> Number seven, The Guff is Empty. Can you guys decode that? Nope. No. <laughs> so uh, Jesse Thompson used to say, all I want is a day without guff. And that's where I know guff. Yeah, from. like, don't give me any guff. But Yeah, I've heard that. But guff, guff is not a vessel, me. to my knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> the world is not a guff. <laughs> Number six, I don't give a bleep if I'm drunk. I think it's a good idea, and I vote you do it. <laughs> that one's, it's on the nose. Number five, also pretty good. Hell froze over. Later, the name of the Eagles reunion album, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Number four, one million monkeys at one million typewriters. <laughs> Classic. Uh, what it turned into be. I'm surprised they were able to resist to keep squeezing that monkeys lad mm. uh, reference. He's been dropping in a lot of these top tens lately. <laughs> number three, the White Album. Okay. <laughs> no, number two, Truth or Dare. I'm assuming at this point that's a Madonna reference, but yes. mm -hmm. it could be how they ended up doing this. 
number one last chance before we bolt that upper management <laughs> yeah taking that paycheck and running things were not going well <laughs> well guys wow this was quite a conversation quite a journey that we took through this Epic. issue is there anything else that was in that you as you flip the pages that stood out to you i think we have to throw in here before we close the, the thing that i loved in this issue was the amalgam people sending in art of their own amalgams because that's what i did on the prodigy message boards all the time at this point <laughs> it was just coming up with different combinations Awesome. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely be putting that uh, on social media so everybody can see that because, oh man, that that was just the <laughs> ultimate. I mean, everything mm-hmm. with Amalgam was the most exciting deal. And I know even on the AOL, you know, the wizard world in those days, Russ Wooten said he basically got his job for Buddy Scalera by being in you know, all those forums and submitting art. They had like these different art groups that they would <laughs> share. So, all right. Well, guys, again, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for coming along for this journey. And uh, why don't you tell people where they can find you if you <laughs> actively want any type of communication online. Justin, why don't you start us out? You can find me on Twitter at Justin Acklin. That's A-C-L-I-N. And then uh, at justinacklin.com. That's my website. I write comics. You can read about them there. What's the latest? Do you want to point us to a title? Oh boy. I've got a book right now that we're submitting to editors at different uh, publishers. It's really cool. And I hope that you can read it soon. All right, TJ. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Papa Deech, which is P-O-P-P-A-D-I-E-T-S-C-H. If you read Marvel or uh, I just started writing for a website called Looper recently. So that's uh, where you can see my stuff. All right. And Chris. I'm on Twitter at World of Ward, and you can find me playing pinball at the Uptown in St. Louis. Um, I will plug Alex Segura's Secret Identity, if you haven't picked it up. It's a wonderful book. And Shanti Collins' Pain Don't Hurt, Mm. a Meditations on Roadhouse, available at (laughs) mzsworldstore.com. We also have to give a shout out to our good friend, uh, Ryan Panagos, who is now officially part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe because he Mm -hmm. appeared in the first episode of Ms. Marvel. So as as, as far as I'm concerned, if Ryan is in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, then all of us are as well, just off screen. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. (laughs) It's good to see you guys. It's wonderful. We love you, Chris. I'm not not nearly as knowledgeable, uh, obviously, but I enjoyed hanging out. It was a lot of fun. I'll second that, and thanks for being here for all the fun. We certainly appreciate you tuning in to this, a very special edition of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Of course, you want to stay tuned for all the latest and greatest entertainment, 90s comics nostalgia that we are bringing you, so make sure that you are following us on social media, on Twitter at Wizards Comics, on Instagram at Wizards underscore comics, on YouTube at Wizards Podcast, and of course, you can always find us at Wizards Comics. where you can check out the entire archive of over 150 episodes of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Tell your friends, rate, review, subscribe. We appreciate all that you do. And hey, until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.